0: to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12. We're studying through this book of Romans. Uh, God inspired Paul to write it so that he would give it to a church in Rome that had not yet seen him. And so what he did in the book of Romans was essentially to write the most essential pieces, I think, of his theology that would go generally to a church. A church he didn't know well, didn't have specific... Things to address, as he does say in Galatians or in the Corinthian letters. But he says, This is what I want a church to know. And he opens it with the declaration that uh, righteousness comes by faith in the Lord Jesus, not by works. And he says, We need that because all of us are sinners. We are under the condemnation and guilt of sin, we are enslaved by sin. And we're unable to break free uh, from sin on our own merits. But God has an answer. He has a, a gracious answer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace means that it was an unmerited gift of God in His Son. That through His Son you would be given righteousness. Not earned. Not achieved. Not discovered. But simply given and received through faith. A righteousness that clothes you in the eyes of God so that He says you are right with Me forever. And that happened in a moment at God's declaration. And He says, not only am I going to answer your condemnation, your guilt of sin by clothing you in righteousness, I'm going to send My Spirit to you that He would work in you, that your life would become what I have declared you to be, that you would become righteous from the inside out that I would overcome the slavery to sin by your connection to Jesus through faith and by the Spirit's work, and that God would always be at work in us. And then in chapter 12, he says, in view of those mercies, of God's kindness and His grace that extends to us through faith, he says, I want you to respond by offering yourself to God. It's the only thing that makes sense. And for the rest of the book, we're coming to understand what it means for us to offer ourselves to God in view of His mercies. In chapter 12, we're dealing a lot with what it means to interact with other people, particularly in the church. And today, we look at what it means to love our neighbor in chapter 12, verse 9, which is where I'll read in just a moment. Before we read, let's pray and ask for God's blessing on the reading and study of His Word this morning. Our Father in Heaven, we are utterly dependent on You and we ask You to nourish us with Your Word. Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from Your mouth. Well, these are Your words, and so we want to live by them. Teach us to digest Your Word, to enjoy it. Teach us to uh, respond to it and, and to live our lives in line with the grace that gave us these words. And above all, would you help us see Jesus in what we're about to read? That we might see the greatness of our Savior and be in love with Him all the more. We ask for your blessing upon your word, for our sakes and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. This is God's word. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And weep with those who weep. This is God's word. It's completely true. And it was, it is utterly trustworthy. There's a, a man named Joe Wagner who wrote an article for Reader's Digest. And he was a guy who was involved in, in junior, uh, you know, children's preparing for uh, farming and agriculture, 4-H kind of stuff. And he was at a a junior stock show where kids would show animals that they had begun to raise and were now on the market. And there would be an auction. One little girl let out her lamb. And the auction began. And the the prices, you know, how people will be at at children's events. They might tend to be willing to part with a little more money than they would at a a business It's to encourage them. And so the price for her little lamb began to go up. A couple of dollars a pound, three dollars a pound. And, And she began to think, this is... Pretty good money, but she was going to lose the lamb that she cared for. And while she was standing there, everyone who was part of the auction began to see her start to cry, and she kind of leaned on her lamb and, and hugged it. Well, that actually made the auction go higher. More and more was being bid on this lamb, and it got to an exorbitant amount of money. When finally the auction ended, at a, an outrageous rate to pay for a single lamb, the one who'd won it said, I'm going to pay the amount for the lamb and then I'm going to donate the lamb back to the girl. Everyone thought that was beautiful and brilliant. Joe Wagner was later judging statewide essays when they came across one from a girl. He told about the time her grand champion lamb had been auctioned. Here's what he wrote The prices began to get so high during the bidding that I started to cry from happiness. She continued, the man who bought the lamb for so much more than I'd ever dreamed I would get returned the lamb to me. And when I got home, Daddy barbecued the lamb and it was really delicious. (laughs) Sometimes what looks like love really isn't. Sometimes the very thing that could look like love turns out to be something that's not that at all. What looked like love for this lamb was love for money. What looks like love in the church sometimes is being polite and kind and you know, present at things. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes we treat each other with that kind of niceness and politeness and kindness because it makes us feel good about ourselves. And then when I'm treating someone with kindness, it's because I want to feel good about me. I'm loving me. Or or sometimes I like what it makes other people think about me. I'm guarding my reputation. That's why I maintain some control over my tongue and what I say to someone. Not out of love for them, but out of love for me. And what looks like genuine love is really, well, not that genuine. When Paul says, let love be genuine, Some of the old versions read, let love be without hypocrisy. And that's precisely what it says. Let love be unhypocritical. I don't want it to look like love when it isn't. Now, here's what really happens. We're we're all still affected by sin and that selfishness, and it remains. And so on our very best days, when love is at its most genuine, it's probably mixed with some self-concern And we'll never get it pure in this life. But it's the trajectory that we want to set. And and on those days when if you are a Christian and you are really concerned about your reputation or yourself, there's probably still a hint there that's real genuine love. And we want to take that and fan it into flames. And so Paul's going to tell us, here's what genuine love really looks like. It is not just being nice or polite or saying decent things. Love looks like those few verses that we read. Love that is true must be one that is willing to be honest. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Sometimes what we want to do with love is we want to avoid any kind of conflict. I don't ever want to get into an awkward conversation. I don't want to ever deal with anything. But here's what I have to do in order to maintain that kind of politeness, that niceness, is that I have to overlook anything that's wrong. I have to be able to see a person who's engaged in self-destructive evil and pretend I don't notice. Because that way I don't have to talk about it. I don't have to bring up the awkward thing. And it lets me stay nice, but it's not love if I don't abhor what is evil, it's having someone who has got an addiction and saying nothing. It's watching someone destroy relationships but saying nothing to help them see that it's a, a sin that underlies all of their problems. But I'll just be nice and stay on the surface and be comfortable... You know, sometimes you can see this in like parenting the most. I will tell my kids, you cannot go there. You cannot do these things because I know where that path goes. But I'll see someone else's kids and I will watch them go down the same path and think, I don't know if that's a good idea, but they're not my kids. And so the same love doesn't extend to them. Their parents have that responsibility. And there's a certain sense in which I ought to let my hands be off because it's their children. But I love my kids too much to just say yes to everything. We have to abhor what is evil, but we also have to cling to what is good. It's not enough just to go around and be the the behavior police. That is not what genuine love looks like. I'm looking around, I'm going to find out when you're doing something wrong and I'm going to abhor it. (laughs) I'm going to abhor it with my words. I'm going to let you know. Don't go there. Ah. The cling to what is good means I have to notice what is good and encourage it. I have to say, look what is good, and I want to model it, and I want to live it out, and I want you to abhor evil in my life and be able to help me get rid of it so I can push it away and cling to what is good. We have to do that together. In verse 10, he says, here's the environment in which you can do that kind of thing when you can abhor evil together and love what is good together. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection, well, to put it as simply as I can, it's the kind of affection that you you would see in a family. Because you you know the old saying, you can pick your friend, you can't pick your family. And you go, you know what? My brother, the man he might be, you know, tough and he might be different than me, and he might do all kinds of things I don't approve of, but he's still my brother, and so there's a bond that's gonna be committed. And and he says in the church, in these relationships, that's how you wanna think. No matter what goes on between us, we're family, and I wanna say if we come to have that conversation where you have to abhor evil in me for my own good, it happens in the context of, but we're in a relationship and no matter what happens, that can't be broken. There's an affection here that's demonstrated. That we have to outdo one another in showing honor. You see, if someone has been showing me tons of honor with their words and with their encouragements, then when they come to me and say, and you hear something you should work on, I can believe them. Because they've shown me they're committed to me and they're out for my best interest. It's genuine love, not just someone who wants to, you know, fix me up or tell me how to get my act together or to unload their frustrations. Love must be honest in the context of affection and honor. I had a, a student when I was an intern with RUF at Clemson, Andy. Andy came to me and said, I want to know, are you the kind of friend who would tell me I had broccoli in my teeth? I said, What are you talking about? You know, hey, you get some broccoli in teeth and you're like, Oh man, they got broccoli in teeth, but you don't say anything because it makes the <coughs> table awkward. Said, but, but of course, he meant it as a metaphor. Would you tell me if you saw a sin in my life that was ongoing and it was hurting me and I didn't notice? And I said, Andy, I will be that friend. Will you be that friend for me? You see, that's a part of what love looks like in the church. It's not just being nice. That has the appearance of love. But it's not real. Love must be diligent. Verse 11, Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Love doesn't happen passively. Or at least it doesn't happen well. Here's how... Passive love looks. We will wait till someone crosses our path. We'll wait till we hear about a crisis. We'll jump into action for the crisis and then we'll go back to being ourselves and wait till someone crosses our path. I'll just happen to be sitting around and I'll see someone and go, Oh man, I haven't talked to them in a while. Hey, won't you come sit down? Rather than to think, How can I get to know people, to know what's going on in their life, to care about what God is doing? You see, real love takes zeal, diligence. takes initiation. It takes pursuing. After all, don't you know how people love you? It's the ones who track you down, who call you and say, hey, I need to be in your life. Love is diligence. Love is spiritual. It's not enough just to be concerned about The surface things, the latest circumstance. But verse 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. This is really counterintuitive. It's not rejoice in your good circumstances. Rejoice in what's not yours yet. It's not, let's see how we can get out from under this suffering. It's learn to be patient in tribulation together be constant in prayer, constantly thinking about how the the favor of God comes to impact us. You see, healthy, loving relationships in the church probably aren't chiefly concerned with how comfortable we are, although it's certainly that. They're chiefly concerned with how much we're getting to know Jesus together. That, after all, is what he's saying here. Love must be Spiritual. It also must be generous. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, I said a minute ago, it's not chiefly concerned with our comforts and our physical needs, but it certainly is concerned with that. Here's how you'll know who you love. Who do you share your things with? Who are you willing to share your resources, your money, your possessions, your food, and your time? hospitality literally means love for the stranger. And so it's not just enough to to throw money at something. But rather He says, I want you to bring the stranger into your life. This isn't just for those who are ministers or elders or deacons. It's for all of God's people. And our calling is to say, I want to bring people into my life. I want to show hospitality. Let me make that concrete for you. For some of you, what that would mean is I'm going to make a list of people in the church I'm going to try to get them over to my house to see what's going on in my life. Just because I want to welcome them in and I want them to know what happens in this household. I want them to be familiar with what God is doing in us. You've got this long list. Maybe it's you go to the, the directory and just start listing them. For some of you, that sounds awful. And you're like, that's terrifying. I'm not sure I could ever do that. Let me encourage you to do this. Find one or two or three other people in the church and just make a routine day every so often. I don't know what the limit ought to be. But make a day every so often where you get together for coffee and you just say, here's what's going on in my life. What's going on in yours? You see, that's the point of welcoming in. And let me add one other thing. Here's what tends to happen among people. We use our friendships and our relationships to satisfy social needs. And so we build these circles of folks on whom we can depend and gain what we need and we're happy there and we feel contented. But hospitality says, I'm not content that my needs are met. I want to see if there's someone else out here who who has a need that I can bring them into my circle. I want them to see this circle of of, of relationships as one that brings others in. If you must think of it this way, it's like a very tight-knit circle of people who are constantly looking out, facing outward, looking around and saying, who needs love? Let's bring them into our circle. That's what hospitality is. Love is true or honest. Love is... Diligent, it's spiritual, it's generous, it's also gracious. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Now, if all the rest were stuck, you could say, Yeah, I could see that. This is the one we go, Okay, I think this is good and right, and I have no idea how to do that. I mean, somebody cuts me off in the car, and I'm like, What's wrong with you? You're my enemy. But Jesus says when they persecute you, when they oppose you on purpose for the sake of the gospel, give them a good word. Bless. How can you serve those who are against you? That's what love looks like. Jesus said it powerfully in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, what good is it to love those who are like you? Anyone can do that. Love your enemies. That's love. Verse 15. Love is empathetic. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. If you were to pick maybe a dozen verses in the Bible that I think about the most, this would be on that list. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Seems great. Be happy when other people are happy and When you see other people sad, join them in their sadness. Simple enough. The problem is, it's really hard to do. The problem is, our hearts are so distorted, what we tend to do is we rejoice with those who weep. And we weep with those who rejoice. Here's why. I look at somebody and I see their great blessings. And my first thought is not, what a great thing for them. My first thought is, why not me? And the little self-pitying tears begin to form as I weep with those who have blessing. And I see those who are suffering. And instead of thinking, oh, that is a struggle. Let me stand beside them. I think, whew, glad it's not me. R.C. Sproul tells the story of of his father's three-year descent into illness and eventually dying. And he noticed that as he began to suffer more and more, his friends weren't showing up. And he was really angry. And he went home to his mom and he said, Why, where are his friends? Why aren't they here? And her response was pretty insightful. They don't know what to say or what to do. They don't know how to be here in this. They don't know how to weep with those who weep. You know, sometimes all it takes... Is to go sit there. You don't really have to have great things to say. You just have to be willing to move into someone's pain and be nearby. To be able to say, this isn't about me, but about them. To see someone's joy and to say, this isn't about me, it's about them. Let me rejoice with them. That's what love looks like. It's honest, diligent, spiritual, generous, gracious, and empathetic but it's also impossible. If you're really paying attention and you know your own heart, you read this and you think, I like that. It's beautiful, but I can't do it. I can't be this genuine. I have too much of self-concern. I know that if I were to act like this, if I were to be generous, somebody's going to take advantage of me. If I were to show honor and encourage, then... I'm going to give a ton and be left drained. If I take the chance to confront them with their sin, they're going to hate me. If I bring up spiritual things, if I want to rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation with them, they're going to think I'm a fool. And I'm afraid to do this. I'm afraid and I can't let go of myself. And and, and that's why you need the first verse of chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present yourself as a sacrifice. It's by the mercies of God that you have genuine love. His mercy is what comes and enables you to live like this. Just one way. There are probably many. But just one way His mercies enable you to do this In order to love someone genuinely, there has to be a little bit of self-forgetfulness to it. You have to be willing to say, "All right, I'm not going to concern myself with my needs and my cares today. I'm just going to look at someone else. I'm going to see someone else's joy and rejoice with them, or someone else's tears and weep with them. I'm going to forget about what I want so that I can care for someone else. But the only way to forget about what you need and want is to believe that someone else is looking out for you. And that someone else is God. He is looking out for you. It looks like this. To wake up in the morning and to say, God, will you take care of me today? I'm going to trust you for that. I'm going to trust that you provide for me the things I need. I'm going to trust you provide me for the strength I need. I'm going to trust you to take care of me today because I'm not going to look out for me I'm going to look and see what's around me. And you abandon yourself to these mercies and believe they're sufficient so that you can then look out for someone else. Love is honest, diligent, spiritual, generous, gracious, empathetic, impossible. And it's like Jesus. If you want to know what this passage is really about, I want you to see that it's actually describing the love of Christ for you. His love is genuine. He looks at the evil and He says, in order to get rid of it, I will die to eradicate the evil in you. And I will put My Spirit in you that you might have good. I will maintain an eternal affection for you. And I will outdo everyone in the universe in honoring you. I will be diligent in pursuing you. I will be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord on your behalf. Jesus says, I will rejoice in hope for you that we will be together forever. I will be patient in my tribulations that you might escape yours. I will be constant in prayer. Hebrews tells us that even now the Lord Jesus intercedes for us in prayer he gives us all that we have generously invites us into his life bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse do you remember Jesus on the cross while they were physically putting him to death and yet he says father forgive them they don't know what they're doing Pray that for you too. And then, last of all, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I want you to remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said to his disciples, Stay with me, pray with me. I'm going to go pray to God. And he began to weep and to pray and to cry out desperate prayers such that the sweat came out and it was like blood on his forehead. It was a terrible scene. And what did his friends do? It says they fell asleep. Jonathan Edwards says that God wanted his son to see this so that as he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he would say, okay, here is where you're going. You're going to die to save these people. Are you still willing to do it? And Jesus prayed as they slept and left him alone. As he wept by himself, He prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And he went to the cross. And he wasn't just forsaken by his disciples, but by his Father. He was utterly alone so that you would never be alone. So that Jesus could say to you, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You will never cry alone, not with me. And now He urges you who bear His name, who know His love, to be the tangible expression of that to each other. Listen, if you have wept alone a lot, and some of you have, I want you to know that you that Jesus was with you. And the way it's supposed to work is that Jesus' people will be with you too. So that you can sense it and, and touch, as it were, the presence of of God with you. I want First Prayers to be a place where people, when they're talking about it, say, well, I've never cried alone there. People knew what was going on in my life and they never let me go alone. I think we need a lot of grace to get there. But I want you to know that's where Jesus is taking you. That's where Jesus is carrying you together. That we will love genuinely. And in a second, we're about to look at a table. And a and, and table is, an, is a picture of fellowship. And it's Jesus saying this, You are not alone. You are not alone because I've given you my body and my blood and my spirit and I am with you so come and fellowship with me. Whether you are rejoicing today or weeping today, you are not alone because Christ's love is genuine. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would You persuade us of Your genuine love and even more than that, would You produce it in us that we might not only hear of it in the Scriptures but see it tangibly expressed in Your people that we could drink deeply from Your love And believe that You care for us and have enabled us to give love to each other. Be gracious to us. We're not good at this, but we'd like to be. Would You produce love in us for Christ's honor and glory, we pray. Amen.